Welcome to Electronically Yours with Martin Ware. Hi, it's Martin here. Electronically Yours is always well. You'll have already heard part one of the Matthew Deere interview. Um, and this is going to be part two coming up right away. Um, we're getting even deeper into stuff. Um, I honestly think this is one of my favourite interviews that I've ever done. Very profound guy. He's done a lot of interesting stuff. I hope you're enjoying it and I hope you enjoy the second part. Here he is, Matthew Deer. Confidence also, but I go back to the Beatles a lot. You know, Beatles are such a cornerstone for 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 my musical, you know, like obsession. And you realize it was those like three or four years in Hamburg when they they basically learned every yes yes every song from like the 1950s uh, and and before, and they knew how to play it with their eyes closed and probably their ears plugged with like cotton, you know, and they could all just sit together and play the song. Cause but it that's was like getting the larder together for a, for, for making a brilliant dish. Right? And scales and libraries. So each of them had this massive song library in their head um, that they could pull from at any point of their songwriting career. Um, and you hear these stories about how like, you know, Paul would be like, hey, George, check out this, this like chord that I just invented or, you know, and, and he would just like play a chord on the guitar and George would be like, oh yeah, that's like a, you know, dominant, da da da. like he, he yeah. knew what it was, but they didn't know. They just, they had all the sounds in their head and they were just trying to kind of put it together in the, the way that they thought was, you know, the best. Um, and that's why I tell the kids, you know, it's kind of like, like I said, the the Beatles didn't have different chords. You know, they they just had practice and experience, like putting all those different chords together and listening to other people do it, and and figuring out how it came before them and how they could do their own version. Um, and the production you add George Martin into it, you know, and they've got this this wealth of of capital that allows them to make these choices um, and and experiment in this kind of technological age of things like growing at, at light speed, you know, two track, four track, you know, multi-track, you know, the, it was just like, can we keep up, you know, can we, can we kind of invent the wheel every, every album reinvent the wheel, but also, you know, kind of make a good song. I, I love like yellow submarine. Like for me, listening to all the, all the sounds in the background, but also listening to the way that they layered their, their harmonies and like there's one vocal track in yellow submarine i don't know if it's ringo i think it might be george because ringo does the lead vocal and it's just like like we all live in a yellow submarine yellow sub it's like it's off kilter but you uh, hear it and that paired with everything else it's like oh that's the soup that's the vibe you know that's yeah that's, yeah yeah it's not auto-tuned it's not you know it's it's just weird, and I think I love weird music, you know. Oh well, yeah, I'm with you, mate. It doesn't always have to be electronic. It's oh, totally. Uh, it's, it's weirdness and passion and soul, you know. Mm. Um, wow, this has been really good, actually. <laughs> I really enjoyed yeah. it, and uh, um, 
Good. It's nice to uh, talk to somebody who's on the same wavelength, you know. Yeah, uh, we're out there. We're all out there. You know, it doesn't matter. Yeah. I, you know, I mean, young kids, that's what I tell kids too. And it's like, there's no gatekeeper. You know, they, they ask, there's always asking, how do I do it? You know, how do you know if, if you're supposed to be a musician or, you know, leap of faith, you know? And I just tell them, nobody's out there saying yes or no. You know, nobody's at the top with this giant notebook or a clipboard saying, okay, you get in, you don't get in, you get in. And nobody's ever going to tell you no. But what people do love seeing is passion and yeah. unwavering, like I'm doing this because I am a musician or, yes. you know, I, I was meant to do this and nobody's going to tell me otherwise. And you might not be the greatest singer or it's, it's not going around being overconfident, but it's just, just believing in the idea that you can do it and that nobody else can kind of tell you not to. <laughs> exactly. But also it's about, it's about believing in your intuition, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It's about believing that if you instinctively respond in a way and go, oh, I've got to put this on this track, you know, what is it? A fucking kazoo, right? I mean, look at, you know, I'd use kazoo as an example. I mean, Crosstown Traffic, right? Mm -hmm. I did a cover version of Crosstown Traffic and I did a, you know, a kind of examination of what was on the track. And that fantastic lead hook uh, lead sound is is basically his guitar with a double with a kazoo that's it because they couldn't get the right sound out of the amp yeah so they just went fuck it we'll do it with a kazoo yeah and they're going nobody will go because everybody yeah. associates kazoo with something stupid right or uh, playful anyway just an yeah. example um well, i think that's a problem too i just want to say you know look i we all live in this new world of, of ready access to everything so in terms of music creation you've got your sample libraries now you got your chord libraries you got ai chord generation you got so much being available which are awesome tools but it's like being a gardener and walking into like a shed with a million shovels and a million you know like rakes and you're just kind of like oh my gosh like which one do i take you know like so many options so i think that's kind of a big i just want to remind you know, everybody listening or whoever's, you know, making music out there, sometimes it's okay to give yourself limitations or, or not rely on stuff. Cause I, that's where I get stuck. I get stuck when I, when I start using these tools and I realize, well, I don't know what a C major seventh is, but now that I'm like clicking it and dragging it into my DAW, it's like, I'm immediately like, um, I feel not like, ignorant but i feel like oh well i didn't know what that chord was before I, the computer told me what it was so you know what do i know like yeah, you start getting... because the visual part of our brain is yeah. is being right from a survival point of view the yeah. most important sense is obviously sight because you have to perceive if there's a threat the second most important is is hearing right mm. but the problem with uh, digital audio workstations is you are being led in a musical way by what you are seeing, Yes. whether you like it or not. Now, you can regard that as a useful tool for assembling things, but you can also, you know, the, the monkey can become the organ grinder. You know, mm -hmm. it's a problem. If you start allowing 
the processes that are on the screen to guide your creativity. Mm -hmm. I have a problem with that personally. I have to fight it all the time. Oh yeah. Just because it looks nice and symmetrical and oh like what's missing there? Oh look, there's not much happening in that. We never used to have that joy mm -hmm. or or horror or whatever it is. We just used to have to listen to the song and plan it in our minds ahead, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. You know, so anyway, there's all that. It's good to hear. fascinating um, discussion, actually. Yeah. Um, Maybe we can do a part two one day. <laughs> well, do you know what? I think, yeah, I mean, let's, yeah, I'd love to do a part two if you were up for it, because this is really, we barely touched on a lot of the stuff that you've done. Um. But anyway, I'm gonna ask you about just tell me before I leave or before we're done. I don't know what your time is. Tell me about um um I mean what's what dare and then what's well the, I wasn't uh, I wasn't involved with dare, number one. Okay. Okay, I'm when left, did you get it? I left by then. I, I I wrote the um first two albums. Okay. And which ones were those? Um Travelogue and um Reproduction. Awesome. So what just tell me about there were no hits on them just okay, before the last. Got it. So uh, they were not, they, uh, they're quite, hits. you have to go, okay. but if you, you might not have even heard them because they were quite experiment, experimental in a kind of pop sense. But if you you still, them, have you heard are you them? Still, are you still close with like the original members? Um, well, Ian stopped doing music about 10 years ago now. Okay. Uh, and he was a part of M17 as well. Um, uh, and Phil, we are in touch from time to time, but he's, um, there's, they, you know, they do their thing. Humanly, Mark, we still touring with M17. So we don't work together anymore, no. But, um, yeah, there's a, there's a father at, at my kids' elementary school who's from Sheffield. And, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's a bit of a, old school mentality and I really appreciate it. And uh every now and then we, we chat and I told him earlier last week, I said, hey, by the way, I'm I'm gonna be speaking with somebody from Sheffield Martin where he was he was very uh he's very impressed. And he's like, oh, oh. why does he want to talk to you? Like it's really cool. <laughs> so that's my little show. Yeah. That's funny. It felt good. I was I was toting your name around the, the, the playground at school. <laughs> well, I'm so glad that um, Sheffield is a, it, it has got a presence over there. I mean, is, is Robin Gristle from Sheffield? Sorry, is Robin Gristle from Sheffield? Or? No, no, Cabaret Voltaire. Cabaret Voltaire, that's right. Yeah. They were out. They were the Human League's mentors, really. Yeah, yeah. In the early days. And that's one of those things too. Like just these links, like Can for me too. Can is like kind of the experimental Beatles in my mind, you know. Uh, and then you see, you see the old photos of them, you know, in a studio and they've got that crazy studio complex that they had and it's all foamed walls and they all have giant headphones on and their instruments. And I realized, oh, they were hearing every, like, that's why they could get so wild with the effects and the multi-tracking because they had it all. Can you hear me? Yeah. So my dog just stepped on the power button. Um, <laughs> My power trip, everything just went like, Kunk, and I was like, what? And her paw is just like right on the power. Oh my God, that's funny. Yeah. Really? Yeah, was, about Ken, you know, I saw these photos and I realized, you know, also they had a, uh, Holger married some, he, he talked about how he, he married like a, a very wealthy Swiss, like heiress. 
And I think they were just bankrolled. Like they had freedom to do whatever they wanted to because they had money. And they, to me, are like kind of the first bedroom musicians. You know, like, like that's what, that's kind of where we ended up, you know, where there's just, you have so much time with, with, with memory and, and computer storage that you can make all these choices and do whatever you want. And I remember I actually ran into uh, um, Nile Rogers once and uh, we were in an airport lounge and I got to ask him, pick his brain for like 10 minutes. You know, I was probably very annoying, but um, asking him, you know, about that time. And he said, yeah, it's like tape was so expensive and studio time was so expensive that you had to be on the second they push record and you couldn't right. mess up. You I want this incredibly expensive. You couldn't mess up. You couldn't experiment. You had to know your craft and you had to, to perform it to like A plus the second they recorded because you couldn't afford, you know, mistakes or, or reduce. Um, and I also That's asked it. them. So decisions had to be made at every point in on uh, on a per minute basis. Yeah, I'm sure Visanti told you a lot about that too. You know, choices and, you have to make. That's a good thing. thing. Yeah. So it's not like even, you know, of course, the whole thing was if you didn't finish it by the end of the day, firstly, it's going to cost you a lot more money. But secondly, mm -hmm. you probably couldn't just book the studio for the next day. You'd have to come back the following week. Totally. Therefore, the engineer would have to note down all the settings of everything, including all the outboard gear. And then when you reset it, it cost, it cost money because that's like another couple of hours to reset it. And often there were mistakes mm -hmm. when, when the recall was done. So anyway, yeah. very kind of boring for the non-technical people, but it's very important, you know. Yeah. 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 Uh, now, of course, everything is, is revisable infinitely. And that, that is that is the curse, you know. The curse. You know, I read about those early Aerosmith records. That um, was a Steve I, I, Iovine or whoever was. I, I like reading these old like record producer magazines from the seventies and stuff. Where they would have these kind of tech interviews, and they talked about that that process of losing the high end on on the tapes because they. Oh yeah. They kept like bouncing it like back and forth and they realized that when they ab'd like an original one with what they had ended up with they're like oh crap like we lost so yeah. much of this topic yeah. so then you know hearing these decisions of well that guitar has that reverb or effect on it and that's that lives on the tape that that's on the guitar track you know you don't have a separate effects track and it's just a good reminder for anybody kind of creating in this landscape to just sometimes make hard choices and make make firm decisions and leave them and, and move on to the next one. I've got a great story for you. Okay. When we were making uh, our first single that we released in 1978, it was called Being Boiled. And um, I think it was quite it was quite seminal at the time. I mean, it's very simplistic. Or We didn't even have a, a multi-track of any description. All we had was a, a two-track Sony with okay. sound on sound capability. So you could bounce from one track, to, from left to right mm -hmm. in mono uh, onto, uh, onto the right hand track and add something as you went along and then bounce back and add another thing. And that's how we made the record, right? Amazing. But yeah. once you bounced four or five times, the original rhythm track started sounding like 
absolute shit because you're losing the top end all the time. Yes. So the limitation was four, five bouncers in mono. And that was the track that people loved and it came out and uh, it got played by John Peel, who was a tastemaker at the time. Amazing. And uh, that's where and it got re-released about three or four times in different countries. And the people, and I, when we got a proper record label, Virgin, and we had access to like, you know, multi-track and all the stuff and all the outboard gear, we did a version of it as we would have liked to have done it had we not had those limitations. Mm-hmm. And people still like the original. Oh, yeah. Because that was the vibe. That, that's It's the soul of, of all the members during that process. It's, that's right. That's it's right. the decisions you made not knowing certain things, you know, that, that's I, what makes There were plenty fun. of things we didn't know, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, here's the fun bit. Well, it's all been fun. Um, yeah. I always ask these stupid kind of, Smash it's type questions, uh, which these I'm terrible at answering on the phone. Well, like, what's your favorite color? Don't worry. What is your favorite color? Blue, blue, mm. go blue. Yeah. Um, okay, over turquoise. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, actually, let's get into subtleties here. Pantone, you know, whatever. Um, what's your favorite film or one of them? Favorite film, um, I almost mentioned it, yeah. Different times of my life, obviously, I have, you know, favorite films. Uh, there's actually one, Heart Worn Highways or, or Be Here to Love Me. It's a story about Tom Zanzant. Um, right. I, I really, it's like, what's well, a movie I can come back to? I think I, I like that one a lot. Okay. Uh, favorite TV show, Past, Present, Box Set? Mm-hmm. Um, growing up, I was I, I caught the premiere of a show called Syphil and Ollie. It was a puppet show on MTV. Um, and it was so bizarre and so strange. And I, it was the first time I ever took acid, too. Just happened to, like... Watch oh, that's the, a good combo. I watched the premiere of this, like, insane, you know, psychedelic puppet show, you know, on acid. <laughs> wow. So, uh, and when I did, I talked about a show I did during COVID, I, I did some puppets and, you know, I think I was definitely paying homage to this, this major influence. It's just, it's absurd. You know, I, I like seeing things that are, that don't belong in popular, popular culture, but they get there and, and they make it. And once they make it, people are like, Oh yeah. Like I know why that's so popular. Cause it's good. You know, it's, it's special. It's unique. Um, so there's weird things. So that's, that's the one that pops up. But is it my favorite show of all time? I'm like, no, but it, it was important to me. On that, on a similar um, vibe, yeah. I thought when Ren and Stimpy came out, it was the yes. greatest thing that was ever made. Absolutely. Honestly, I still think the, now, the original John Creek Falsy, uh, you know, before it went a bit more mainstream, mm-hmm. was uh, the first couple of series were just... I still look at them now and I go, fuck, that puts you in a psychedelic trip. Mm-hmm. Pee-wee's Playhouse, I think it's kind of in there. Oh, yeah, um, Pee-wee's Playhouse as well. There's moments in, in cultural history where we're kind of like, okay, that was like a, a lane change. You know? Or it just allowed people to think differently. Right, it's to be for sure. I, I actually played some videos for my kids, and I have to kind of censor it. And I'm like, okay, some of this stuff's a little too vulgar for you know elementary school. But I realized everything can be, it's like the six degrees of Kevin Bacon almost. Like 
it's almost like everything in popular culture now has six degrees away from Ren and Stimpy in terms of the choices they made <laughs> and like the, the humor and, and just the style. And, you know, it, it was obscene and it's, it's dirty and it embraces kind of like that grotesque part of. I love um, that though. You know, and like that wasn't, that was unheard of back then. You know, it was, it was raw. I mean, we we were very influenced by um, the absurdists, uh, playwrights, and and uh, you know, like people like Alfred Jerry, okay. uh, who did Pear Ubu, um, mm-hmm. um, not the band, the play, and uh, and 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 um, actually, I did an install, I did a three D sound installation at the National Portrait Gallery in um, oh, in London, and. Uh, in a, to accompany uh, this exhibition of Picasso portraits. And so I did a deep dive into it. I thought, what, what relationship does he have to sound at all? Mm. So I did, and I, I found out that, that Picasso gave up painting and sculpture for two years to become a poet mm. and a playwright. And he wrote this piece called, he wrote this play called Desire, which is extremely famous for being unstageable because the stage directions are so bizarre. You have to go and look it up. You, it's like, just to give an example, it's like, uh, you know, it'd be like so-and-so comes on stage, a cloud of bees descend from, Uh. from, from, uh, from the heavens and sting the man to death. Then they dismantle him. You know, it's like, fuck, no, 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 stop, stop, stop. But this that kind of absurdist thing, anyway, and surrealism. So, yeah, surrealism. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. That's cool. I'm there's a great video. Have you seen? It's like a French filmmaker did stop motion um, recording Picasso drawing or painting. Um, and and it's, it's such a great, because you see kind of through they have like a, like a backlit glass pane that he painted on. And so in real time, it's like black and white. You're seeing Picasso paint one of his, his masterpieces that, you know, he became, it became a a multi, multi multi-million dollar selling painting. And what's what's absurd about it is just like watching his, his movement and his hand and the brush strokes you know, and the, just the choices in real time that he's making and how flippant he is and carefree, you know, it's with, those, beautiful, though. That's a beautiful with those decisions. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, his famous quote is it, you know, it took me six years to paint like, um, was it Rembrandt or it took me six years to paint like one of the masters yeah. to learn, but it took me a lifetime to paint like a child. Yeah. Uh, beautiful. And that's, I think that's we what can I try take to that into music, we? That's what I want to say. I think I try to remember that in music. It's like, you know, you got, you always have to be pulling away and stripping off the noise and, you know, all these things that want to make you seem like a grown up or, you know, a functioning adult. <laughs> um, you know, a lot of that stuff doesn't, doesn't go well with art. Um, with and creativity so it's it's a balance but you can't be a, a lunatic you know you, you can't you can't go out and just live on the streets and and you know succumb to all your your, your vices and, and your passions um you know that way so there's just that balance you know there's that 
like Depeche Mode, you know, get the balance right. You know, it's like, I think that's, it's a big part of anybody's career, but that's definitely mine. You know, how far can I push it towards the absurd or, or the not so caring about sleep or, you know, not, not so concerned about what words I'm going to say in a song versus the paycheck to support my family. Versus, yeah, it's you know, interesting, isn't it? This kind of balance between response, I mean, responsibility when you have children. Mm-hmm. You, can't get, you can't go out and get fucked up every night. You can't turn up at 10 in the morning when you've been on acid all night. You can't do mm-hmm. that. It doesn't, mm-hmm. Those two worlds do not. There is no Venn diagram where that works, where mm-hmm. that intersection works. And yeah. that's when my life changed, you know, as soon as I... I was lucky enough to give up. I, I, I've been sober for seven years now, not drinking. Well done, well done. Um, but I'm, I'm half Russian, so, you know, I'm, I'm the guy that had a bottle of vodka on stage with me, you know, just drinking wow. out of the bottle in my 20s. You know, because in my mind, music to me is, the, I guess, the missing part that we didn't talk about. When I saw The Doors by Oliver Stone, you know, when I was 13 or 14, that was another aha moment when I saw Val Kilmer playing Jim Morrison. And I said, okay, that's, that's who I want to be. You know, like in my mind, this character of a musician and this legend that was portrayed on screen embodied everything that I thought would be fun and cool about being a musician. So that became my, my, my entrance essays to university of Michigan. I remember my, my, um, you have like a counselor that you have to meet with once when you get to college as a freshman. Pulled me in for my meeting and said, hey, let's talk about your entrance exam. It says here, you you wrote how you're basically going to be a, a famous musician. Like, <laughs> like that was like the whole entrance was talking about how I'm going to do it. And they just, they thought it was so fascinating that I was so like spearheaded in my belief. But they also wanted to know like, oh, how are you going to do it? You know? Yeah. And I remember I never, I never had an answer for that. I was just like, I'm just going to do it. Like, you know, it's, it, I, I don't know how I'm just going to make, <laughs> I'm just going to make the music. But that's the thing is like, you know, I, I obsessed over the character of it all. So anyways, my twenties and I think from 16 to like 29 was probably, you know, you could, you could average out the alcohol and, and illicit substances probably daily. Um, but luckily right before the birth of my first child, it had all caught up to me, you know, and I kind of realized, yeah, this isn't going to work. Um, no, know, it just doesn't mix. I needed to make a change. So I, I started dabbling in sobriety then, and then it, it finally stuck about six or seven years ago. And I, I will say the best thing about that I heard was John Goodman, the actor, was doing an interview once, and I guess he had a notorious uh, uh, battle with substance yeah. abuse in his early days. And he said, yeah, he's like, no, I'm retired from that like that's like i'm retired and i, I remember hearing that man like, it's a really good way to look at it like it's like no, no no i'm i'm a career professional like party animal but it's it's a part of my life that i've retired from you know it's, it's like i i, I went through a, uh, not uh, well not in drinking terms but i went through a similar thing with cocaine for a while yeah and um a long while and uh I just regard it as being something that just seemed age inappropriate as well to me. And yeah. I, I've got friends who 
unfortunately never did come to that conclusion and they've now i mean a lot of my good friends from that period have passed I'm afraid, yeah. because yeah. bodies aren't designed to take that shit for any period of time no Not, especially um, now with all this fucking fentanyl everywhere and like oh that's the really i mean i, I can't imagine being i've had personal experience of it let's put it that way not me but um yeah anyway. i couldn't be a youth i wouldn't be alive if i was born now based on the choices that i was making the, the carelessness that i was making you know when i was in my 20s um so yeah it's, it's, a, it's a whole new world with all that people got to be really careful really careful man and there's like also not just fentanyl and whatever it is there's a whole bunch of new synthetic drugs that nobody knows the short-term or long-term effects mm. of and it's not just like hey you know, you're old you know you know you've had your fun well i tell mm. you what <laughs> pure cocaine is not a terrible drug it, it's not the worst drug in the world it's quite amazing. In what gets cut with, that's mm -hmm. going to get you in the end. Mm -hmm. The same with MDMA, the same with the, the I mean, I have to uh, put, uh, give a shout out for um, psilocybin, which I think is Absolutely. a fine drug with very effects, you keep it under control. Um, but apart from LSD frightened me to death personally, but... Uh, there's a there's a great country artist from Texas. I forget what his name is, and he has a song. One of the lines is, "I never liked cocaine. I just like the way it smelled." Ah, <laughs> that's really good. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, I dig that. Anyway, yeah. the reason I'm stretching this out a bit now is I'm thinking I'm going to split this into two episodes. Oh, cool, awesome. And I think that saves us coming back to do it again. So, yeah, so, well, I've definitely got enough material. <laughs> yeah, I've got enough material. So uh, let's carry on with this. Um, yeah. If you had an alternative, well, you've got an alternative career. Oh, now. yeah, yeah, the question, sorry. But you're a teacher. But, I mean, if you did not become a musician early doors, what do you think mm. an alternative career for you might be? Oh, that's a great question. I would, I would like to say author, writer, mainly because I'm not very, I've never been very good at it, but it would have had to been something that I would have had to really train and, and practice. Um, but I, I, I've always had this idyllic romanticized notion of what an author's life might be like. I, I lived in upstate New York for a good two years after we lived in Brooklyn. We bought an old, old barn that was remodeled and we lived on five acres. No, we couldn't get FM, couldn't get cell phone. And I always thought, it didn't work out, you know, so, you know, we had our first child and we realized, okay, we're in the middle of nowhere. But I always thought if I was an author, like this would be a great place to be, you know, if I could work from home and make my money from my brain to like the paper and just send it off to be, you know, edited. So I think I have this like, idealized version of what, how that could be fun. Have you but done I'd probably, that at all? I'd probably be like Jack Nicholson in, in The Shining. Yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Wendy, Wendy. <laughs> that's, that's the blunt reality of how that narrative would go. <laughs> um, have you done any uh, significant uh, novel writing, autobiography, uh, anything? No, but I've had Chat GPT write me five novels. So. <laughs> oh God! No, I know it's. You know it's, it's coming, uh, right? Oh, absolutely! It's already happening. But here's the thing with Chat GPT, and like. 
I, I recently realized, okay, look at oblique strategies, you know, Farnino's yeah, yeah. writing, I'm you know, and like just words cutting up and putting in a hat and drawing them out. Or John Lennon, you know, day in the life, he said it was all about newspaper headlines. You know, he would just read newspapers and get kind of like ideas. And so I've kind of learned to accept AI in that way. Like I used AI for like oblique strategies or I'll bounce ideas off of um, these generators just to get like base and get ideas going. It's like having a friend in Mensa that you can text, you know, every now and then. Right, or, right, right. Or just like little things. Like I had this one, I, I was doing, um, it was like an ambient sound piece. Um, I could probably even play it here if I want, but so I had this, this idea. It was right when like ChatGPT was like out. So I said, okay, I want to write. I told it, I said, here's, here's the, the concept or the premise. I want you to write me a series of haikus where the last line of the haiku shares, lends words to the first line of the next haiku. And then, so they're all like connected, but then the very last haiku has to share lines with the first one or words not like the last oh, so cycle right exactly and I, I i said it's like a riverboat paddle wheel where the water's falling from each paddle to the next and it's going in this this kind of circular nice idea. yeah and so it did and, oh and i said the themes have to be love and acceptance and you know just like like just a nice like spiritual like theme and it just spat it right out and I took those words and I put it into like a a, vo a voice generator. Uh, it was Amazon's Poly at the time. Uh, there's a lot of different ones now. Um, and I had a computer say the words. And then I took that sample and I ran it through a whole bunch of weird effects and stuff. And, and then put that narration over a sound piece that I was doing. And it worked perfectly. It's like, okay, this is an example of something that I could not have done completely on my own. And I was using the kind of the, the strength of this word smith of 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 us of software um but that's the thing ai at this point you know i know everybody's everybody gets scared of, of the future but at this point everything that ai does requires a human component mm -hmm. you know when ChatGPT emails me out of the blue and says hey here's this like crazy idea i had i want to share with you like i'll be scared that's that's what I'm <laughs> but right now <laughs> every interaction goes, takes a person no, to start no go no matthew that isn't very good is it and how about this that, that's that's the creepy kind yes of. yes overlord <laughs> yeah i mean i can no uh, i mean i've had endless discussions with people and people talk to me about the tool. AI all the time. it's a tool my, that's it my problem is my problem is not the creative part i can understand uh, how that can be helpful and everything and i will and will continue to use use it mm -hmm. my worry is there's a great there's a great um architectural historian called john ruskin i don't know if you're familiar anyway yes. he wrote uh, this book called the stones of venice and i used to live in venice for decades and um became obsessed with it so uh, I read this book and he was going, his big thing at the time, this was like the mid 18, early 1800s, I think. Yeah. Uh, he was bemoaning the fact that 
people were no longer using uh, the fantastic historical um, skills of stonemasons in the right way. Mm-hmm. That the, the, it was becoming cheapened. This the, the kind of people would live their entire life working on one building, you know, mm-hmm. to create these masterpieces that would live forever. And he just saw this and he went, oh, they've got all these new techniques. And he's like, and he came out with this quote, which has always stuck with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the same themes occur throughout history, right? So it's like, and I, I, I don't know the exact words, but the gist of it is there is nothing that cannot be done that can't be done cheaper and worse. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think my view may be hyper cynical is. The world is run, follow the money. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's it, People like you and me look at this as a creative uh, uh, landscape. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, our, that's, our, uh, that's our modus operandi, right? Mm-hmm. But the vast majority of people just see it as a way of doing something cheaper. So like, oh, for, yeah. instance, for instance, in Britain now, a lot of uh, marketing departments are, get, uh, are getting laid off because they're just... But, you know, they get some intern who they're not really paying for to just type it into chat GPT and it generates a whole bunch of art bollocks that goes into their uh, mm-hmm. curated, you know, kind of uh, stuff. So there's, <clears throat> it's a bit, it's a bit like Caxton and the printing press, you know, we're, mm-hmm. or, you know, or, or, the, or the moving into <clears throat> the digital realm of um, art and graphic design and stuff like that. There's a lot of comparisons. Yeah, it- you know, as of now, I think it all still takes and samples from pre-existing human creation. So I like to think of it like if 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 you can't be more creative or do something more inspiring than you know AI, then maybe you should hang it up anyways. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, not, exactly, exactly. Maybe it's not your job anymore. You know, if okay. if you can't, or maybe the job shouldn't have existed in the first place. You know, like mm-hmm. you know maybe. I like uh, just the other side of it. You know, I'm always kind of looking for um, maybe, maybe that stonemason, you know, could then go and do other stuff with its time, with his time. Cause he didn't yeah, have to exactly. spend his whole life working on a fucking column for, you know, like one building. It, um, yeah. You know, there's it's always that other side or, you know, slaves, you know, yeah, the, the exactly. power that probably made a lot of that stonemasonry happen. You exactly. Know, there just weren't other options back then, so maybe we have alleviated some of like the, the 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 stressors of being a human by, you know. Alternatively, nobody's gonna have a again, job in the it's, future. You know? It's the balance. Yeah, again. Exactly. get the balance right. Okay, so um, what's yes. your favorite book? I've asked I've asked you that, haven't I? Yes, I've no, you, I don't no, you. I don't. Um, probably something by Kurt Vonnegut or Philip K. Dick. I'm a, oh, I was, I was digging into those guys for a while. Yeah. Um, right. Um, an epiphany in your life. Mm. I think probably that John Goodman quote, you know, just looking at your shortcomings or things that you kind of burden yourself with, like, like being very into, you know, alternative, alternate realities or thinking that like you know you're better off if you're intoxicated you know 
if you have that kind of that battle your entire life and then kind of just looking at it a different way, looking at it from a different way. Yes. So like that tool of just looking at it from a different perspective, like, you know, no, I was really good at it. You know, like, it's not a bad thing. Like, I was, I was very good at being an alcoholic or, you know, a, a, a drug user. Um, but I chose to compartmentalize it and, and leave it somewhere. Um, you know, I retired from it. Uh, so I think that's that good. was that's uh, that was a big moment in my life, just kind of learning how not to look at it as like as a crutch or a fault or a exactly. back that was raging inside of me. Um, there was another quote from uh, an author I forget who said it, but for for alcoholics or just people that are really into that that lifestyle, no matter what you do, you could be twenty years sober that person is still in the parking lot doing push-ups like ready to get back in the game all you have to do is ask him in you know say hey come back come on back in so that was another good like way to see it like yeah like i'm still all these people you know like i'm still all these different versions of myself it's just how am i going to control them or or, or just how, how am i going to understand myself enough to like know where they all belong you know very well put okay favorite um Visual artist. Oh, oh, that's good. Um, I have so many. Well, it could be a conceptual artist. It doesn't have to be just yeah. a painter or whatever. I mean, it's. I'm thinking of so many people that have kind of impacted me. Um, it's it's probably like the most recent thing that I that I really got into, you know, I would, I mean, Picasso, of course, you know, is just, just seeing that process really inspired me. Um, but also, you know, obviously the, the, I think the simplicity and magnitude of like Rothko stuff, yeah, you know, like, like the one I go, we're going deep dives, like learning more about his process and, and like the buildings that they'd like, hire for him to do these commissions and and like the strategy of like you know the, the different turpentine like kind of like mix mix levels he was getting with like the paint and the the additives and then you kind of can zoom in on these paintings you see like kind of the, the drips and the brush strokes you see this the madness and then i think was it tchaikovsky or like he only listened to like a certain uh composer like while he created so i think that whole thing was very inspiring wow. when i learned wow. you know it's, just, it's there's a lot that goes into that void of an image um and there's so much i think going on behind the canvas in a way so that that was a fun recent deep dive into a painter wow. so very that's inspiring. a good answer very good answer um, <laughs> so I've got, I've got, a, a, I try and change up the questions for everyone. Yeah, yeah. So there's a few okay. different ones. But yeah. I wrote, uh, you're making me laugh because I wrote this down. Mm. Um, music for crying to. Music for crying to. What, what makes, makes you cry? What makes you well up? Yeah. There's, there's some. Usually it's like nostalgic. You know, that's the thing with cer certain songs. They something happened in your life when you first heard it or 
you know, you heard it during a time in your life when things felt different. And that's, I think music is one of the only things that has this oral memory, you know, yeah. Yeah. like when you hear something, it's a little bit like a deja vu kind of feeling. Like an emotional memory. Yeah. yeah. And there's a lot of songs that kind of have that, you know, and it, it takes you back to some sort of innocence lost or some sort of feeling that you had or the girlfriend that you were dating at the time. Yeah. Yeah. There's like something in your oral memory that lives and it's, it's, it's hard to describe. So any song with that, you know, happening in it usually. Um, but no, there's, there's one actually by Guy Clark. Uh, it was written by Steve Earle, who was kind of a Texas singer songwriter who came up under Guy Clark and Towns Van Zandt. Um, he's, he's probably 10 or 15 years younger than them. And when Towns Van Zandt died, he wrote a song called Fort Worth Blues, um, which is an homage to, to Towns. And um, Guy Clark re-recorded it. And I think Guy Clark's version is, is it reminds me of my father. My father passed about eight, nine years ago. Um, and it's like Fort Worth, neon signs are bright. Um, city lights, golden blue, or red and blue. They'd shut down all the honky tonks tonight if they only knew, um, you know, kind of like if they only knew you died. Um, answer to him was always good for grieving. Uh, London never seemed to make you blue. Uh, Houston really wasn't my kind of town, so I walked around with the forward blues. Like it's just it's such a great story of a musician who never totally made it in in pop culture sense, but is a legend to a lot of people. So forward blues makes me almost cry. I love that. That's beautiful. Thank you. Uh, it's it's a really good one. Yeah. yeah. Um. <clears throat> Who's your favorite record producer? Um, like a like a old school like like yeah, mix, yeah. mixing producer. Um, you know, I oh, know no. everybody's a producer now. I mean, you know, yeah, right. old school. Yeah, I'm I'm, like, I'm, I'm a Nigel. Oh, I'm, a Nigel I'm a Nigel Godrich fan. You know, like Radiohead for me was a huge, huge part of my my musical upbringing and hearing the choices that they were making and knowing what Nigel kind of had to do with oh. it all. That's a big one. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, in terms of techno, Ricardo Villalobos, he's, he's my, he's my, my goat. <laughs> he's the one I listen to and, <laughs> and always inspired by. Okay. Final question. Um, mm. What's your favorite synthesizer? You'd be surprised. It's more, Play something from the 90s for 2000s. I've been kind of deep diving on these. I think all the synths that I wanted to buy when I was in high school that I couldn't afford that were like in every record or every uh, guitar store. So like the early Waldorf stuff, I really like. Um, like the microwave. There's just something it's like that hybrid digital analog thing that was happening. I, I like squelchy, quirky, but controllable, you know. Um, I appreciate the fatness and warmth of an Oberheim or a, a Moog, you know? Yeah. I, I think I like a bit more of that digital funky weirdness that comes from those later kind of FM. I guess FM, you know, it's, it's kind of a fun thing for me. It's interesting, you know, because 
because I grew up and learned my craft through analog synthesis. Yeah. And for me, it all started falling apart a bit, a bit with FM synthesis because I know because I've talked to the people who designed it all that what was dri- the engine that was driving that move to FM synthesis was not a creative one. It was it was to make things cheaper because they could totally. control, put everything onto multiple buttons and you know put it all on one chip and da 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 da. I know some good stuff came out of it, um, but um, totally different I've, experience. Uh, definitely. Um, yeah. I, I hate the term virtual analog. That's like one of the disgusting terms ever. I could sit you in my studio and play the virtual synth versus the real synth and you, it's 100%. like two entirely different things. I've, I've watched uh, videos on the Lindrum basically and, and them sound analyzing, you know, frequency of, they did like a hi-hat, like on a 16th, you know, pattern. And every hit looked different, like the yes. wave different because of the chips and the way that Lynn just designed the filter, you know, like there's so much happening with oscillating and those, those chips and the, the just the randomness that happens that you just can't get from a computer because it's too perfect. Um, you can emulate it, try to, you know, there's ways to, to work around it but like and, and within those synths you know each one was probably different you know like you could have two you know um different synths from like 1982 side by side and they're both going to sound a little bit different you know yeah. from each other you know so that, i'm totally with you on that uh another thing which um i when i was producing an album for erasure well, mm-hmm. Vin, Vince has got every synth on earth and yeah. duplicates and most of them. Um, and one day, I was trying to convince him that he should start using Logic because he was using a uh, hardware... Um, like a Ranger. Yeah, it was a Roland Microcomposer. Yeah, yeah. Right. So it was all numbers. And I'm going, well, this is fine, you know. And then he had this thing, like we, he was the only remaining user of this piece of software on a BBC B computer yes. called the Yumi. I think he still uses it. So he's composing on like old instruments. And I'm going, come on, got to go into Logic. So I thought, and he got an oscilloscope, a dual trace oscilloscope. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I'm, as a matter of interest, I'm, I'm going to do an experiment here. So I programmed... Um, a whole bunch of kick drums on on um, eights, okay. <clears throat> looping round, and I did the same thing. Uh, that was on Logic, and then I did the same thing on the hardware synth. Okay. Triggering something, uh, triggering the same sample, and I thought I'll have a look at the timing on this oscilloscope make sure that it's rock solid because I've always had this theory intuitively that hardware sequences just sound better because they're more accurate. Yeah, 100%. So I looked at it. I was absolutely gobsmacked. The disc, the, the, the kick drum, on the screen it was saying it's perfect. The kick drum was, was varying randomly up to 12 milliseconds 
on what would uh, to the to the ear would wow. go well. Yeah, it's pretty much plain fours there. No, whereas the hardware sequencer was absolutely accurate, and that's why I believe that things like you know say Trans Europe Express or you know the ro uh, the robots and all that stuff. It sounds so funky, and that's why it appeals so much to mm -hmm. the techno uh, techno producers, because as we all know, to get to make syncopation work, you need that rock solid thing in the middle, right? So anyway, there mm -hmm. you go. That's why. I think. And on that bombshell. I think uh, I think we've done our time. Thank you Please. so much for your patience. I appreciate it. Have you lost me again? Yeah. Can you hear me? Can you see me? I can see you. Yeah. Okay. There. Right, All right. Time. I'm going to say goodbye. Thank you. That was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I really enjoyed it as well. Thanks for wanting to talk to me and then for taking the time to talk. I think I what I'm going to do is I'm going to put it out as two separate episodes on a weekend. Oh, so good. There'll be one on a. We normally pray out on Friday. I'll do mm -hmm. Friday and Sunday. And then, uh, yeah, it'll be fucking great, man. Perfect. I'm, All right, I'm man. Gonna, I'm and hopefully I'll get to meet you one day. And yeah. uh, and a shout-out for Ruth for introducing us. My big love to Ruth. Thank you. <laughs> All right, man. Have a good day. Cheers. Okay. very wise kind of creative dude as i mentioned previously feel free to pass comment on it or email email me for whatever reason electronically martin at gmail.com and particularly if you're interested in supporting the podcast keeping it independent free and advert free patreon.com stroke electronically hours another great guest for you next week or the week after i'm not really sure which uh, probably next week. See you then. Bye. Bradford Rabbit. Good name. Um, hello, just listen to your Roger Zeno podcast. Roger's... Oh, Roger Eno, not Roger Zeno. Yeah. Roger Eno podcast. Love the podcast. Have your book and greatly enjoyed it. Recently got music for Stowaways and have all Hem 17 and Human League on both vinyl and CD. And so stoked to see Hem 17 in California. Well, yeah, that was that. Nice. Uh, next song I've got is Derek Carter. Have you got that? Third of the tenth. I have not. All right, I'll read that. Hi, Martin. Short note to say thanks for introducing me to Roger Eno. Great music. It's always a pleasure to listen to people discussing their passions and inspirations. Your podcasts are always witty and informative. I wrote this bit. Right? <laughs> Your podcasts are always witty and informative, occasionally deep and meaningful as well. On a side note, really, uh, I've recently acquired an original cassette copy of Music for Stowaways and liberated my old cassette deck from The Loft. Really enjoying listening to it. Another gem I missed first time around, better late than never. I'm really interested to attend one of your immersive experiences. Do you have a website with details of those these events? I mean, they are very occasional, but um, if you so if you have a look on illustriouscompany 
www.ghostbusters.co.uk website. Um, that should it'll be on there if it's ever going to happen. Take care and thanks again for the great podcast. Thank you, David. Thanks, ne- David. Next one is Phil Coles. Have you got that? Yeah. Seventh of the tenth. I do. This is from Phil Coles. Hi, Martin. Thanks for the great work you do. I listen to many music-related chat podcasts. And yours is one of the best. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Phil. There a great one. There's a great there. There's a great one made here in Australia called Known Pleasures, which is great and features an episode on the Human League among many of your contemporary post-punk artists. Link below. Guests. I might suggest Liam Howe and Chris Corner of Sneaker Pimps who fused pop songwriting with electronic music brilliantly in the 90s and 2000s and just released a new album. Also, Scottish duo Boards of Canada. Yeah, that would be cool. Oh, I love um, I love Boards of Canada. I really like to do that, actually. Yeah, who, in my opinion, make what could be described as unsettling music. Thanks again, Phil. <laughs> Not Oki. <okay>, <laughs> um, okay. Cool, thanks, Phil. 